Let's turn to the book of Joel. Joel. If we say Joel, it may sound like I'm just saying turn to the book of Joe, but it's Joel. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's Yoel, Yoel. And let's look at verse 1. We're going to really begin our study with, a, with an introduction to this book and a little bit of a few verses that we're going to study tonight. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Yoel, or Joel, the son of Pethuel. Uh, Pethuel is an interesting name because it also means enlarged by God. Enlarged by God. The day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. You know, so it was in a couple of generations past that that message was was displayed prominently on sandwich boards. You all know what a sandwich board is. You know, a board that has a message on the front and the back and you put it on over yourself and you look like, you look like a sandwich, you know. And, and, and it would say the Lord is, uh, you know, the end of the world is near or whatever. Uh, the Lord is at hand. Uh, or the day of the Lord is at hand. And so uh, these sandwich boards, you know, a couple of generations ago were worn by what the world would call doomsday prophets, you know, radicals as the world saw them, but uh, radicals, according to them, spewing forth a message that, that no one really wanted to hear, spoiling whatever good or bad day they might have had. <laughs> you know, so they didn't, want, they didn't want to hear that kind of stuff. And though we don't see prophets like them out in the public anymore, we still run into them on social media platforms. But their message is not so far out as it used to be considered. Because there is a day coming. There is a day coming and it definitely is at hand. And people need to heed God's word. They need to listen to what God has to say about the days and the times in which we're living. Because one thing is for sure, not only do the prophets tell us this, but Jesus himself told us that judgment is coming to this earth. Now the phrase, the day of the Lord, is central, is the central theme of the prophecy of Joel, the prophet whose name means the Lord is God. The Lord is God. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's quite a message in a name. Uh, it's a message that needs to be heard in our day and time today. Because there are so many people that have so many different kinds of, of ideas as to who God is or what God is and how many gods there may be. And maybe we can even be a god ourselves, as some may believe or think. But we know from the scriptures that there's only one God. And he is the God over all things because he created all things. And he has made all things. And he established a time continuum that we are living in now. But he is outside of because he is an eternal God who has no beginning and no end. So when we consider the name the Lord is God, there's a statement in that as well to us. And any prophet worth his salt is one who is going to say, we have one God and we need to listen to what he has to say about our day and time and the days that are to come. Now what we read in verse 1 is really all that we're given about the prophet. You know, many times we'll, we'll begin a, a book and talk about uh, much of the introduction to a book that's already written in the first few verses of, of, a, um, of a particular uh, prophecy, book of prophecy, or, or book by the, by the uh, apostles uh, in the New Testament. And there's some introduction that we can give based upon what we see at the, the onset of the book. But there's not much given to us here. All that we're given is his father's name, Pethuel. 
which as I mentioned earlier, means enlarged by God. And that is given to us so that we can distinguish the prophet Joel from others in scripture also named Joel. There's, there's quite a few actually that are mentioned in some of the genealogies and in other areas. And so in, in contrast to all the detail that we learned in relation to the prophet Hosea's life in our last study in the book of Hosea, which we had quite a bit uh, in, in our introduction, uh, practically nothing is, is known about Joel's personal history. And from reading the prophecy itself, we can gather that he was a prophet of Judah and more than likely prophesied in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons we can pretty much believe that is because we read that the sanctuary or the temple in Jerusalem is mentioned, or it's mentioned as the house of the Lord, but it's mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse 9, and verse 13, and verse 14. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, the word Zion is given for the name of Jerusalem. So uh, usually when Zion is, is applied uh, to uh, the scriptures as, as, as being a, an identifying marker, it's, it's marking it as the place where God meets with his people. Because Zion is the place that God loves. This is the place he has chosen for his place to be. For his house, as it were, to be. So add to his mention then of the temple. He, he talks about the priests. And he talks about the ceremonies that take place. As if he were intimately familiar with them. So he's, he's speaking of things that he can see or that he has seen. Or that he is actually incorporating in his writing uh, to those who are to receive this particular prophecy. Now, while Hosea's message, again, the previous book, while Hosea's message was related primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel, Joel's message related expressly to the southern kingdom of Judah. And once again, obviously because of his emphasis in Jerusalem and the statements that he makes concerning the temple. Now, as to the time frame in which he prophesied, there's a lot of uh, different and various uh, uh, understandings as to that, uh, or you know, just things that people kind of hold to as as to when Joel actually wrote this prophecy and when he was ministering uh, there in Jerusalem. Most conservative scholars place Joel as perhaps the earliest of the minor prophets, or one of the earliest of the minor prophets, uh, probably during the reign of Joash, the king of of, uh, of Judah. Uh, who lived in the uh, around 800 BC uh, and in, depending on the source that you read uh, sometimes they they say he's uh, he reigned from 870 BC to 865 BC or uh, another view is that he reigned from 835 to 796 and once again depending on the source uh, I guess the best thing to do is look at it from the standpoint of the century itself, which would have been the 8th uh, 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 century, uh, or 800 uh, BC. Yeah. Okay, let me spit that out. But compare that, if you will. Compare something. Because, once again, reading the, the prophecy of Joel can give us some clues as to when this was, this was written. Because you compare it, you will compare it with um, uh, you'll compare it with other writings that give you more specific details. So when you compare certain phrases uh, with others, for example, what we're going to do is compare one quote in Joel 3 verse 6 to Amos chapter 1 verse 2 and if you have a Bible like mine uh, Joel uh, 3 16 uh, on the very next page is, is uh, Amos 1 verse 2 so you can actually compare them uh, right next to each other but if you compare the quotation in Joel 3 verse 16 with Amos 1 verse 2 Joel 3 16 says the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem 
And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you take that phrase, the Lord also shall roar out of Zion, and then compare that with Amos chapter 1 verse 2 that says, and he said, the Lord will roar from Zion. Now what's different here though, that's the same. That, that, that kind of, of prophetic statement is the same. Utter his voice from Jerusalem. But notice the next phrase in, in Amos 1 verse 2. The habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall, of Carmel shall wither. So whereas in, 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 in Joel, there is more of a statement that's leading to something that is going to happen good to uh, Judah, still in Amos, there is some focus upon the sins of the people. Even though they're, they're, they're beginning the verse the same way, or their verses the same way. The Lord will roar from Zion, utter his voice, but he's going to bring something down because uh, into the people because of their sin and, and their mourning and, and, uh, and, and, and all. So, you, you know, you have to compare it by reading both, both Amos and, and uh, Joel. But if you compare Joel 3, verse 18, going back to uh, the, the third chapter of Joel, notice that it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down the new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Uh, in Amos 9, going all the way to the last chapter of Amos, uh, verse 13 of chapter 9, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. So there, there is more of a, a, of a statement dealing with sins that have been dealt with by God in, in the time of Amos because it, it's, it's actually speaking of a different time. Uh, and, and, and why I mention these two uh, passages to compare is that when you compare the two prophecies, what you will discover is that the sins denounced by Amos, because Amos goes down through a list of sins. And then, of course, you know how, how Hosea listed those sins of idolatry and all the other things that were associated with them uh, in the content of their prophecies is not, none of the content is mentioned in Joel's prophecy. That's the point. Joel does not mention any of those sins, whether in Judah or in Israel, in his, in his uh, prophecy. None of those sins. But primarily, he does not deal with the sin of idolatry. So the reason why we bring that up is because that means that he probably wrote his letter in the 800 uh, uh, BC area for a, a, a good long while before Ju uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, fell deeper into their sins. And the same with Judah having fallen into their sins so much later because it would be in the 586, of course, that, that Judah then would be taken captive. So we're talking about a good deal of time before the nation fell into deeper sin. So that's why those, those uh, verses that sound familiar or sound the same are different because one mentions the sins and, and then, you know, the outcome of it, and one does not mention the sins at all. So that, that's just a, just a way of, of kind of trying to decide when this letter was written. But you'll also notice something else when you begin to study Joel. You'll, you'll notice that no reference is made in the book of Joel to the Babylonian, Assyrian, or even the Syrian invasions. All those came much later. Had they happened around the time or, or during the time or even before, then you would know pretty much when Joel was written. And it would have been written much, much later than it uh, uh, is considered to be uh, written. And then there are enemies mentioned in, in the book of Joel, but those enemies are the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Edomites, and the Egyptians, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, and not the, Syri uh, and not the Syrians. There's the Assyrians and the Syrians, by the way. You've got you to distinguish between those, those two. But if you look at Joel verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, here is the mention of, of their enemies. It says, Yea, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, or Sidon, and all the coasts of Palestine? 
And I, I'm just mentioning this for this one particular reason. Uh, Palestine was not a word that was, uh, that was written in the time of Joel. Pal Palestine was a, a word that was understood uh, by the King James uh, translators that came from the name that was given actually by a Roman uh, emperor uh, for the area, which was about 110 AD, uh, that uh, he, he named the area of Israel Palestina because it, it was in more in reference of saying that this is the land of the Philistine and the land of the, of the Phoenician because they were the ones that actually inhabited the land from Tyre and Sidon. And then, of course, the Israelites defeated them. Uh, for example, David defeating the Philistines and, and Goliath and all. So it's an interesting thing that the word Palestine is used there in the King James. But I've often believed and very strongly believe that the word is there for a reason. And it's there to remind us that even before the coming of Jesus Christ on, into this earth and even afterwards, there was going to be something of, 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 a, of a deterrent to Israel Named, named Palestine. And look at today. One of the strongest enemies against Israel today is the Palestinian uh, uh, group, you know, that uh, today is, is constantly bombarding Israel uh, politically and even militarily at times, throwing bombs and, 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 and whatnot, along with the Hamas and the, and, and the other uh, the groups that are uh, terrorizing Israel to the, today. But, uh, you know, the Philistines, the Phoenicians are really who, they're, who it's named after because the, Rom the Romans hated, hated Israel and they hated the God of Israel and, and they hated the, the, is, is, the, uh, the Jewish people. So he, he just labeled it uh, Palestina, you know, so, uh, because it, it, it was the word that was uh, uh, used for the Philistines. So I just mentioned that because that's, that's, uh, that's the enemy there. The Philistines, Phoenicians are the Palestinians of that time. And uh, in Joel 3.19, it mentions Egypt and Edom. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. Okay, all that said now. So the information up to this point that I've given you, Joel may well have been the very first of the writing prophets, the writing, the minor prophets, being that late or, you know, uh, early on, I should say, of, of, the, of the prophets themselves that did the writings, uh, he may have been the very first. So if he did minister during the time of Joash, the, the reason nothing is said about the king, King Joash, is that he was only seven years old when he came to the throne and uh, was being mentored by Jehoiada, the, the priest. Uh, now you wanna read about that, it's a very interesting story. It's a tremendous story. Uh, I believe it's in 1 Kings uh, 11 and 12 and uh, 2 Chronicles 22 through 24. So you want to read about Joash and, and what happened with him. Uh, this was when the, the line, that was, you know, the, the, the Davidic line was getting really thin and uh, the enemy was doing everything he could to destroy the line. So uh, yeah, you might want to... Uh, read into that as well. This would have been the time of the prophet uh, Joel. All right, so as already stated, the major theme of Joel's prophecy is the day of the Lord and the need for God's people to be prepared. So if you want to write down what the theme of the book of Joel, and it's only three chapters long, and the Hebrew Bible, it's four chapters. They divide chapter two up a little bit. But uh, in, ours, in our Bible, it is uh, three, three chapters. Uh, again, the major theme is the day of the Lord. And by the way, we see that phrase five times in the scriptures. The day of the Lord. And we are going to talk a lot about the day of the Lord in the next few weeks. And then the sub-theme is the need for God's people to be prepared. The need for God's people to be prepared for such a time as the day of the Lord. Now, the phrase itself, the day of the Lord, is used throughout the scripture 
to refer to different periods when the Lord would send judgment to his people. Now let me give you three examples. The first one would be the, uh, the, it is the term that describes the fall of Israel in 722 BC. Now I'm not, I'm not giving these to you chronologically, I'm gonna skip over one and then you just turn them around here in just a minute. But it is the term that describes the fall of Israel in 722 BC. And uh, the prophet that mentions it is the prophet Amos. Now we've already been to Amos, which is the next book over. So Amos 5, verses 18 through 20, he writes this. He says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now I want you to stop and think about that statement. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, if you know what the day of the Lord is, you wouldn't desire it, right? I mean, you, just, you wouldn't desire a day of darkness. You wouldn't desire a day of, 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 of just uh, this uh, great uh, judgment of, of God upon the land and upon the people. You wouldn't desire it. But I think that one thing that we need to understand about the statement is, what unto you that desire the day of the Lord? You, you, just, you don't care if it happens or not. Let it come. There are people today, the ones that would criticize the sandwich board uh, carriers, you know, with the message, the day of the Lord is at hand, to say, you know, let it come. We don't care. We don't believe it's going to happen anyway. How many times, think about it, how many times did we read in the book of Ezekiel that they were being told that something was going to happen and they didn't believe it? And any of the other prophets that we've studied, Isaiah and Jeremiah, every time the, the things were mentioned, Jeremiah especially, he would say, these things are going to happen. And the false prophets of the people were telling them differently. And this is the kind of idea, this, this is the kind of mindset that the world has today. What went to you the desire of the day of the Lord? As if you don't think it's that heavy. As if you don't think it's going to be a a major time because the day of the Lord is not one single day what we know about the day of the Lord I'm just kind of giving you a hint here but you know you've already heard it before many times is that the day of the Lord is is really a seven-year period of time we know it as the great tribulation period mentioned in the book of Revelation mentioned many times in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel especially not as the day of the Lord, but as that, that time of, of, of great trouble. It's called the day of Jacob's trouble, the day that uh, Jacob, of course, being Israel itself, will, uh, will be dealt with for seven years. The last seven years that are separated from the other 483 years of judgment that Israel was supposed to go through and has gone through, except for those last seven years that were detached there at the end of Daniel chapter 9. So he says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord, to what end is, is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness. See, if you don't, if you don't look at, at the things that God is saying about the days that, that he's going to bring judgment, then we're just kind of saying, ah, it doesn't matter. Take, for example, today. Things are falling apart all around us in, in this nation. Things are getting worse and not better. And it's not one person's fault, by the way. It's many people's fault. And we can get really political if we wanted to. I don't want to get political. The fact of the matter is, when we get political, we, we begin to lose sight of what God is doing and how God is using the things that are happening in the world today to bring about the coming of Jesus Christ. All I know of one thing, Lord Jesus, come quickly is the cry of the believer. Maranatha, the word Maranatha means come quickly, Lord Jesus, used in the book of Revelation. But the fact of the matter is, you know, how attached are we to this world? How attached are we to this world that, that you know, that we would, that we would say to the Lord, oh Lord, you know, come quickly, except, but don't come next week, because I've got, some things that I need to do, or, or you know, Lord, 
first week of February. Don't come before that because that's a Super Bowl, you know, that kind of thing. You know, that kind of thinking. You, you, do you understand what I'm saying? I don't understand that. What we see in the world and what we see happening today, listen, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about this this coming weekend, about, about uh, the, the, the mention here in the last couple of weeks of things that are happening with Iran, Russia, and Turkey. Three nations that we've talked about in the very recent past, especially when we were studying the book of Ezekiel chapter 38, three nations that are at the very center of what is happening today in the Middle East. And don't think that if you don't hear anything mentioned about Israel that everything's gonna be cool. It isn't, because these are enemies of Israel. And they're setting themselves up right now for the Ezekiel 38 and 39, the, uh, the Gog and Magog War. Which when you figure it all out, there is also an, a Psalm 83 war that is going to be a part of all of that at some point. More than likely before the Ezekiel 38 war, but it's gonna happen. Because all those nations are also mentioned in Psalm 83, and they're all neighbors of Israel. Neighbors only in place, not in, you know, be kind to your neighbor type thing. They're not kind to their neighbor. So again, woe unto, the, uh, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is, is it for you? Because the day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it? I mean, it's gonna be a gloomy time. You know, the times today are pretty gloomy for a lot of people. They're not for the believer in Jesus Christ. They're not, they're not gloomy for us, but the very fact is we see the gloom coming. I remember years ago, a long, long time ago, try to tell this story quick. A uh, long, long time ago, I, I uh, was asked to go play at a uh, rodeo, a rodeo band uh, in Pecos, the oldest rodeo in, in the nation, you know. It was in the summertime. And I was in the, I played trumpet, I played, you know, in the, in the, in the band. And, and normally when you play a rodeo band, they throw music in front of you, and it's mostly kind of real fast, uh, you know, gallop music, you know. You know, after the eight seconds of the guy riding, and then they throw him off, you know, that kind of thing. But then you would play other pieces before and after. So here we are at Pecos. It's an outdoor, uh, outdoor uh, rodeo, and uh, it's a clear day. Except that when, you know, I've never seen this before. You know, uh, I looked in the horizon and it was black. It was like a black line. I said, well, that looks weird, but it's way out there and we're over here and it's nice and clear. And uh, then this Catholic priest came up and he, he was a big guy, bigger than me, and he was wearing chaps. I've never seen a Catholic priest who wore chaps, but he was up there with a cowboy hat and a chaps and, and he said some kind of a prayer and got the, you know, the rodeo going and then all the horses came in with the flags and you know, this whole thing. And, and, and it just proceeded, you know, into this thing and you know, we played our music, but I kept looking, it got getting darker and it kept getting darker. And in the middle of the rodeo in Pecos, Texas, outdoors, we got hit with one of the strongest storms I'd ever been in the middle of. And it, it, and it came right at us, and we were out, outdoors. Yeah, well, we, had, we were inside this little band thing, but it didn't matter. You might as well, as well been outside. We were drenched in instruments. I mean, just like if we had been thrown into a pool. And it just, you know, it started with a little line, but then it just got darker and darker, and I kept playing like this. Because, man, it just, it scared the you know, the living daylights out of me because it just got, man, kind of getting darker. And I kept looking at the time and it was, you know, it was, it was still kind of late afternoon, but I mean, and then all of a sudden it was dark, it was gone. 
And that's the thing about, you know, things happening in the world. I mean, it's going to happen so fast, and, and, and it's darkness. That's what's coming. And praise God that, uh, you know, the Lord said, you know, I'm, I'm going to come and get you out of the way so that I can deal with, you know, the judgment that has to come to Israel, the judgment that will come to the world. But you are not... Uh, called to be going through that kind of stuff. So anyway, long story short, don't play in rodeos outdoors uh, in case somebody asks you to do it. All right, so that was the first description. The, the term describes the fall of Israel in 722. And then secondly, it describes the fall of Judah in 586. So, uh, you know, the northern kingdom, 722, and, and the fall of Judah in 586, a little bit later. And Ezekiel 13, verses 1 through 5 says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say thou unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts. In other words, false prophets, hear ye... The, Lord, the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, thy prophets are like the foxes in the deserts. You, ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of the Israel uh, to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. You have not taken a stand for what is right, for what is true and what is good. You've not taken that stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. And therefore, because they didn't take the stand, of course, they were taken into captivity. Thirdly, it describes another battle, the Battle of Karshemish in 605 BC. And here in Jeremiah 46, verse 10, in Jeremiah 46, at the beginning of the chapter, it describes the Battle of Karshemish. But in Jeremiah 46, verse 10, it says, uh, 10, it says, For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, notice, that he may avenge him of his adversaries, and the sword shall devour it, and shall be satiate, and made drunk with their blood. Satiate is that it just, it, it just uh, takes everything in, uh, saturates, if, if it's a better word, made drunk with their blood, for the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates, that's where the Battle of Karshemish took place. Now, I mentioned those three because each of these locally centralized calamities was a precursor, a precursor or a forerunner, something that was letting you know something worse is going to come later. It was a precursor of the worldwide judgment that was promised by the prophets and by Jesus as well. So I mentioned the prophets talk about it, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But the main emphasis of the day of the Lord will be the future day of the Lord. That will always be the main emphasis. These situations always point to one that is yet to come, the worst one of them all. So the main emphasis will be on the future day of the Lord when the nations will be judged and the Lord Jesus Christ will return to set up his glorious kingdom in Jerusalem at Mount Zion in the place where God wants to be honored and glorified. So the prophecy then begins. The prophecy of Joel begins in verse 1 by these words. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. Now stop and think about those words. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. That is a straightforward statement that holds back no punches whatsoever. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. This prophecy was not, as some more liberal scholars would like to believe, that it was like a, a patchwork quilt stitched together from bits and pieces taken from some other prophet's messages. See, that's why, the, that's why the liberals believe that Joel actually wrote much nearer to the time or after the time of, of all the captivities, and all he did was take from all the other prophets those statements. Remember Amos and how they were very similar uh, words that are used in their prophecies? Oh, well, he just took, you know, he, he just took phrases from this one and that one and put this together. No. The very first phrase of the, of the book says, the word of the Lord to Joel. The word of the Lord. 
I'm in Amos. Okay, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. This prophecy was not, as those scholars would like to believe, this patchwork of, 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 of bits and pieces, because Joel himself did not originate this broad-reaching prophecy. Remember, it was a very broad-reaching prophecy because it would not only affect Judah, but to some extent would also affect Israel, the northern kingdom. The, the prophecy came directly, and may I say, burning hot from the very heart of God. It came directly from God, right straight to the heart and the mind of the prophet Joel. It is a prophecy that came from eternity, straight from the throne of the Almighty and the All-Knowing, the one who sees the end from the beginning. The word of the Lord to Joel. The one that knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That God is the one that sent this message to the prophet Joel. His identification now made clear, or as clear as can be, not knowing much about the prophet himself, Joel, Joel gets right down to business. He gets right down to business. He addresses his audience. Verse 2. And he says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear. All you inhabitants of the land, hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. And then he says this, which is just an amazing statement to start a prophecy. He says, that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left has the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. That is the focus of what Joel is asking the old men. Have you seen anything like this that I'm going to describe to you? Have you in your day seen anything like this? Now let me just say that there is no reason for us at all to believe that Joel is speaking allegorically when mentioning this plague of locusts as if used figuratively of some future judgment. He's not stating something that is saying, you know, well, you know, this, this is just a metaphor or an allegory or a symbolic thing that I'm telling you. No. There's no reason to believe that. Joel is pointing out that there had been indeed an actual locust plague that had devastated the land. He speaks to the older men who had been around the longest of the inhabitants of the land. Hear ye old men, has anything like this ever happened in your days? Or in the days of your fathers? Has anything so grievous been experienced by you or your fathers? That's the question that he's asking. These older men, by the way, would have been the best judges in any question concerning the past. This is why we're living in such a very dangerous time today. Because true history is no longer being taught in our schools. And whatever history is being taught, it's being changed based on the political climate of the time. And rather than give objective historical information, we are being given all kinds of subjective ideas about what history was. That's the reason why 
you see people tearing down statues, not wanting statues of Columbus or Washington or any of the Confederate uh, uh, military leaders of, of the 19th century and during the Civil War and all of that. Oh no, because all of that was wicked and evil. See, and we're, we're, we're putting this, we're pushing this agenda of a, of a political mindset upon people without letting them just get the facts as to why things happened the way they did. Our times were so different than those days. They, they, had, a, they had a much more biblical central, uh, you know, a biblio-central uh, or centric uh, uh, mindset in, 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 in either side of whether it's a civil war or, or the uh, revolutionary war, whatever it was. But now we don't teach the facts. We tell you who's the bad guy and who's not. And obviously in America, there was no good guys the way history is being taught today. There ain't no good guys, no more. That was a triple negative. So these older men, and, and, and understand, these older men would have been the best judges in any question concerning the past, especially since oral traditions were necessary to teach history so as to remember the work of God on their behalf. That's the way it began in Israel teaching the oral traditions. We're told in Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee. Thy elders, they will tell thee. It was incumbent upon these who had that experience, that time in of seeing these things happening, to remember these things, to pass it on to the next generations. The fathers, in this case the old men, were to tell the children in order that they might be admonished by the harshness of this punishment or, or judgment to fear God. Tell it to the children. The first thing he says before he even mentions the locusts. Have you ever seen anything like this? That's telling us it, it really happened. They saw it. Tell your children, and then tell their children, and tell them to tell another generation. Think of Psalm 78, verses 5 through 8. Psalm 78, 5 through 8, it says, For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The fact is no such devastation from a plague of locusts of this magnitude had ever taken place before. And certainly not like ones that, would have, uh, uh, that they would have known about from the account of the exodus from Egypt. What I'm saying is they had never seen a plague of locusts in Judea. as they had learned about in Egypt. Exodus 10 verses 13 through 15 says, And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they before them. There was no such locust as they, neither after them shall be such for they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left and there remained not any green things in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all, through all the land of Egypt. But no plague like this had ever devastated the land of Judea until the time of Joel's prophecy. And in verse 4, we're given four stages or species of locust. 
rather than four different insects. We're not talking about different insects. We're talking about four different species or four different stages of locusts. The first one is the palmer worm in verse four, the very beginning of verse four. The palmer worm, in, in, in Hebrew, the word, pal, the, the word for palmer worm is gazam, gazam, G-A-Z-A-M. And it literally means to devour. It means to devour. Some translations tell you this is the gnawing, the gnawing locust. Gnaws, you know, G-N-A-W, gnaw. Gna, gna, but not, don't pronounce the G. <laughs> so gnawing. Uh, the gnawing locust. And what the, lo- what the gnawing locust would leave behind, then c- would come the locust. And the word that they use for locust here is really uh, the, uh, the word arbeh, arbeh. And it comes from the word rabah in the Hebrew. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, one of the phrases that we teach you to use when you, when you want to say thank you very much to somebody in Israel is todar rabah, todar rabah. Rabah means very much. So from the word rabah, we get the word arbeh, which means a whole lot of increase. Uh, so the locust that is mentioned here as the next stage after the palmer worm is a, a, a locust of rapid increase and of rapid multiplying. It is called the swarming locusts. So you go from the gnawing locust to the swarming locust. And then whatever the swarming locust leaves behind, then comes the next phase of locusts, and, and that's the canker worm. And that's the word yelek. And, and, and this is the younger locust that come, a little bit more. Uh, they're the ones that lick up. You know, young people can eat a lot of food, right? You know, I, re- I remember as a kid, and not, it wasn't me. <laughs> but I, I remember as a kid, you know, we had contests. We'd go, uh, we'd go to get pizza, right? And, and uh, some guys would eat a whole pizza by themselves, not me. <laughs> And I would say, man, that guy devoured that thing. And, and, and that, uh, we, I should have called him a yelek, a canker worm, because they, they were licking it up, man. I mean, and literally, that's what yelek means, to lick up. I mean, to lick up until it's all gone. <laughs> that's pretty much what it means. So you go from the gnawing locust to the swarming locust, and then from the swarming locust, you come in, then in comes the licking locust, you know? And they start licking and taking everything else that's kind of left, but there's still one phase beyond that. And after the canker worm comes the caterpillar. Now, not the caterpillar like we know caterpillars, that's a word that is used in the, in, in the uh, King James, but it's the word hasil. You have to go back to the original language, the hasil, which means to ravage. The word hasil means to ravage. And I, I kind of looked at it as, as the, the, the caterpillar was the cleanup crew. They were the ones that left nothing. While everybody else left something, the caterpillar or the hasil left nothing. So they are called the consuming locust because they are the most destructive. Interesting how they left something for the next group. Keep that in mind. They left something for the next group. That's a very interesting thought that some people have put together from the scriptures. When you think about the prophecy that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, of this statue that uh, had the head of gold and the chest of silver and the midsection of bronze and the legs that were of, of uh, iron and then the feet iron and clay. And, and, and in effect, it was four sections, you know. And each section, you know, um, would... Uh, take the, the one before, previous. 
The Babylonians were the strongest one until who came along? The Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians became, uh, you know, the, the ruling empire until the, the Greeks came. And the Greeks then would take the, uh, with Alexander the Great, you know, would take uh, the world by storm and uh, would become the world empire of the time. But then it was the Romans who defeated the Greeks. And yet the Lord would prove that even the most powerful nation that would take the next powerful nation had the weakness, the weakness of iron, which was not as strong as some of the other metals. In fact, it stood on feet of iron and clay. And this is only to represent one thing, and that is that God who would send the rock of Jesus Christ would destroy it all. But uh, the interesting thing about the, the locusts here is that this last species of locust that's mentioned, the, the caterpillar, the hasil, is, is one that is, is oftentimes uh, three inches, about three inches long. And they have antennae that are about an inch long. And the two rear feet or the legs are larger than the rest, primarily to adapt to leaping. So they were the leaping locusts. But together, all of them together, they, they're, they're used to describe the thorough nature of their destruction. The thorough nature of their destruction. Joel, in effect, was saying to the people, this locust plague was, was quite unique because there has never been anything like it. Never anything like it. But there is a time coming. There's a time coming, a unique period called the Day of the Lord. The destruction in that time will be greater than can be imagined. You think this destruction was great? It's going to be worse when the day of the Lord comes. It will be magnified much worse, multiplied much worse. Now there are a number of references in scripture to locusts, uh, book of Revelation of course, and we'll, we'll come back to those things as we go through our next study. But there's one verse that we need to consider tonight. And that verse is Proverbs 30, verse 27. Proverbs 30, verse 27. An interesting little detail about locusts. It says, the locusts have no king, yet go they forth, all of them, by bands. They have no king, but they certainly work as if they are being led. by a leader, a general, a military leader of some sort. The significance of this verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 27, is that while locusts have no visible leader or head, they, they nevertheless go forth like soldiers in their respective units and regiments. They just go forth like you know, they've been given the directive, they've been given the training, they've been given everything they need to go out and do this destruction. Their moves are so methodical. And again, think about it. The palmer worm leaves something for the locusts. The locust left something for the canker worm. The canker worm left something for the caterpillar, but when it was all said and done, it was all destroyed. They've even seen, and this has been scientifically uh, uh, detailed, uh, that uh, in, in some locust plagues, when they get down to, you know, they've eaten all of the, the, the leaves on trees, they've, they've eaten all of the fruit of the tree, and then they, all of it, you know what they do? That the, the last group starts going through the bark, and they start eating the getting as much of the tree as possible. I mean, they're just like, they're like mad, you know. Mad locusts, 
That ought to make a good movie. But their moves are so methodical that they appear to be acting under some direct instruction and with the strictest of discipline. Isn't that interesting? Now we know that the Lord has created all things for his purposes. We may have a lot of questions about some of those things when we get to heaven and can ask questions if we want. I think by then we'll, we'll already know. But I want to leave you with a thought. While the focus of this passage in Joel deals with the kind of destruction that will be at the center of the great and awesome day of the Lord, that great tribulation period yet to come, it can also be an instruction in fact, it is an instruction in the book of Proverbs. An instruction to believers as an example of subjection to one another and subjection to our unseen head in heaven. The reason why we're told to love one another, the reason why we're told to subject ourselves to others, which means to come below others rather than to look down on others. It's an example of subjection to, to one another and subjection to our unseen head in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus himself. Because you see, to the world, the, the body of believers in this world must appear as disorganized. Look at all the di different denominations and the different you know, places and things that people do and places where people go and whatnot. So, so the body of believers in this world must appear disorganized, fragmented, as it were, unrelated with no leader and no bond to unite us. There's all kinds of people who want to be leaders. You see them on TV all the time. People being followed because they're so charismatic in the way that they do things, but too many times they're leading people astray, leading people away from the truth and not in the truth. So the world sees this. But here's the thing, here's the truth. We do have a head. We do have a leader. And he is the head of the body of the church and his name is Yeshua, his name is Jesus. He is our Lord and he is our savior. And I, I wanna close with the words of Romans chapter 12 verses one through five, because I wanna encourage you as we go into the book of Joel, and it's not gonna be a long study like like Hosea was. I could make it long if you want, but no, I'm not going to make it long. It's not going to be as long, but, it, it, but you know, it's still something that we need to really always seek in every way possible to apply every book of Scripture to our lives in some way. So I want you to see Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, in other words, set apart from the world and set apart unto God, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That phrase applies to worship, true worship. The worship of God through our lives, not just singing, but serving. And be not conformed to this world. I was having a conversation with someone today who was, was mentioning how they had been invited to a church here in, in, in the city. And, and they went and it was, they had a presentation. During, it was on a Sunday morning. They had a presentation by the children. And the children were doing all kinds of of kind of modern dancing type thing. Uh, I'm not talking about modern dance, like what you teach in, in school, but you know, they're, they're just kind of doing a modern, with modern music and, and they were just up there doing some kind of dance and stuff. It's like, why is this going on? We, we came to worship the Lord. We came to learn of God and, the, and of Jesus Christ. And you know, and, and so it was really weird, you know, that uh, all of a sudden they were, and then they kept saying, well, we really wanted you all to come. You know, their friends, you know, we really wanted you to come. And uh, you know, ah. What does that have to do with anything? It's entertainment. 
Is this what we're trying to teach our children about Jesus? They're already being told that there's no Jesus in schools. They're already being told that, they, they, you know, that Christianity is, is, is old-fashioned and you know, it, it has no relevance in, 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 in modern society. And then we're giving them this to kind of keep them in church? Give them the Word of God. What's up with that? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members of one another. When you think back at, at that proverb, the locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them by bands. We have something better. We know who our leader is. We know who the head of the body is, and that's Jesus Christ. So the world, whether it sees what it sees or not, the world will know one thing if we live the light of Christ in us. The world will know that we are truly his disciples because we have love one for another. And these are the words of Jesus. The world will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. That's the challenge that we have. God has called us not, not to devour one another. He's called us to love one another, to encourage, sometimes to correct, but to do so always in the love of Christ and always in the truth of his word.